Hello, everyone. Greetings from the Migration Policy Institute. My name is Essay Worky, and I'm a senior policy analyst at MPI and your moderator for this webinar titled Employment Services for Refugees, Leveraging Mainstream U.S. Systems and Funding. Welcome and thank you for joining us for what I'm sure will be a rich exchange of ideas on how to construct a broader strategy for sustaining and improving employment services for refugees. Before we get started, there are a few administrative and logistical points that I'll need to cover. Please note that everything said during this webinar is public and recorded. We will put the audio up on our website and social media sites after the webinar. And all participant lines are already muted. We invite you, though, to submit questions throughout the webinar through the Q&A or chat boxes on the right side of your screen. You can also send questions to the host or by email to events at migrationpolicy.org. Or for those of you on Twitter, you can tweet your questions to at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPIDiscuss. Again, we encourage you to send your questions throughout the webinar. We will have a Q&A discussion period at the end of the call after all the presentations. During the webinar, please make sure that your computer does not go to sleep as this will cause you to lose the audio connection. If you get disconnected from the webinar, please use the information sent to you to rejoin the webinar. Finally, if by chance you have any technical problems, please email events at migrationpolicy.org or call 202-266-1929. Okay, with the logistical points out of the way, let me begin by introducing you to some of our speakers. In today's webinar, you will hear from experts at the nexus of workforce development, adult education, and refugee resettlement. Our first speaker is Amanda bergson Sholkoff, a national leading voice in mainstream adult education and workforce policies from the National Skills Coalition. Our next two speakers, Sarah Peterson and Karen Philippi, are two experts in refugee resettlement who have successfully implemented initiatives to achieve better job strategies in Washington and Michigan states, respectively. I want to thank you, Amanda, Sarah, and Karen, for contributing to this webinar. We look forward to learning about the resources, the experiences, and the knowledge that you'll highlight in your presentations in just a little bit. As background for the greater audience, this idea for the webinar is birthed out of MPI's newest initiative, the Human Services Initiative, which examines the intersection of immigration policies and access to health and human service programs with a particularly strong focus on children and families. As a precursor to both the Human Services Initiative and this webinar, MPI published a report that some of you may be familiar with. It's called Promoting Refugee Integration in Challenging Times, the Potential of Two-Generation Strategies. The report emphasizes strategies to support refugee integration in the context that we're all living in, uh, seeing a steep drop in refugee arrivals and reduced funding for reception and placement services. 
Those strategies highlight the importance of forging new partnerships to bridge refugee resettlement services with mainstream services and to improve the accessibility of mainstream services to refugees. The theme of that report carries into this webinar as we discuss how to sustain and improve employment services for refugees through partnerships with experts in workforce development and access to related federal funding streams. Of course, in order to forge productive partnerships, a crucial part of that is building effective um, partnerships where you understand the mainstream provider's interests. To that end, the report emphasizes the two-generation or whole family approach, which is getting a lot of attention and use among mainstream human service agencies across the country. In short, as a quick recap of the two-generation approach, it's rooted in the idea that addressing the needs of children is fundamental to helping parents succeed and vice versa, that helping parents with better job strategies or other goals is fundamental to driving better outcomes for children. And there are many different ways to incorporate this two-generation design into programs. It's really a spectrum of design options, on one hand, from explicitly addressing both the needs of adults and children to addressing the needs of one group, but in a way that moves the whole family forward. If you're interested to learn more about the two-generation approach, partnering with mainstream providers, and accessing federal funding streams, I encourage you to read the report and consider the recommendations it lays out for the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration, or PRM, and the Office of Refugee Resettlement, as well as state human service agency leaders and resettlement agencies across the country. Now, building on that study, MPI recently partnered with 10 states to establish a policy academy and move the recommendations toward implementation of the two-generation strategies. In doing that, the two generation strategies are organized in three parts. One is to help refugee adults obtain better jobs. A second is to help young refugee children access early childhood development programs. And third, to help refugee youth successfully transition into adulthood. This particular webinar focuses on the first objective of the Policy Academy i.e. to help refugees, adult, uh, adult refugees obtain better jobs. This is a particularly important focus given that the Federal Refugee Resettlement Program prioritizes rapid or early employment and requires state and local partners to report employment outcomes at the three-month, four-month, or six-month intervals depending on the type of employment program. While federal requirements emphasize rapid employment, it's important to note that states are not precluded from addressing longer-term employment goals. I'll take a few moments now to discuss six sets of questions that can help us to frame the discussion today about better job strategies. And for some who are interested, you may continue this discussion in your respective offices with your local context in mind. 
So the first set of questions has to do with, with data. What data is relevant and available to inform your better job strategies? And what does that data tell you about the types of jobs refugees are getting, how job retention is going, wage progression, educational requirements, even job market demands in your local area. Once you have a strong assessment of the data, the second set of questions prompts discussion around what priority goals would you establish in order to influence the strategy that you're going to come up with. For example, you may choose to focus on getting better jobs uh, at initial placement for refugees or preparing refugees for job advancements or even paving pathways for second wage earners to enter the job market. It's much easier to achieve a specific strategy when there is a priority goal associated with it. The third set of questions has to do with the assessment process that you may be using in uh, serving refugees. The same principles that help to define a better job strategy statewide or program-wide can help to establish better job strategies for individuals and families. In that context, part of the relevant and available data may come directly from refugees through an assessment process. For example, does your assessment process actively solicit information from refugees to develop an individualized better jobs plan or a customized better job strategy. A fourth set of questions has to do with performance measures and incentives. You'll hear more about this from Karen later in the webinar, but the general topic is, <coughs> excuse me, what, what can be done to incentivize performance outcomes through contracts with service providers? A fifth set of questions has to do with clarifying which mainstream programs would make the best strategic partners? Depending on what you've set as your priority goal, it may be the TANF program, it may be WIOA-funded programs, paid apprenticeships, community college systems, or even volunteers. And we'll hear about these different potential partners throughout the course of the webinar. And finally, the sixth set of questions has to do with barriers and strategies to overcome them. Again, this can be applied to both the macro level of statewide or uh, jurisdiction-based programs or at the individual micro level where we're talking about individuals and families. And the question becomes, what are the barriers at the macro level? Are they, do they involve lack of familiarity with funding streams, lack of access to key decision makers, or the need to be responsive to funders' emphasis on rapid employment. And then, of course, as many of us know, when it comes to direct services, the barriers are often related to support services, including transportation, childcare, and the like. I hope that these six sets of questions offer a useful frame to set the discussion and to continue it after the webinar. As we turn now to our first presenter, you may hear one or more of these components reinforced. Our first presenter, as I mentioned before, is Amanda Bergson-Shilcock. She's a senior fellow at the National Skills Coalition 
and an expert in adult education and workforce policies. She's authored numerous publications and policy recommendations and has extensive experience engaging state and federal policymakers. Having partnered with Amanda as part of MPI's Policy Academy, I can tell you firsthand that she's a rock star and a treasure trove of information. Amanda will share important information about how to leverage mainstream funding to help refugees complete post-secondary studies, get paid apprenticeships, and advance in their jobs. So Amanda, without any further ado, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you so much, Essay. It's a pleasure to be here, and I want to thank MPI for the invitation to join you all today. Um, we have a lot of great folks to hear from. I'm a huge admirer of, of not only Essay and her work, but of Karen Philippi and, and Sarah Peterson. So uh, I'm excited for all of us to be part of this conversation today. So some of you know uh, that I like to start many of my presentations by focusing on the reason that I do this work, and I suspect the reason that many of you do this work. We don't do it because we're interested in policy in the abstract uh, or because we kind of are at the 30,000 foot level. We do it because we care about the human beings who are walking in our doors and looking to get a job, get a better job, be able to take care of their families, be able to build thriving professional and personal lives in the United States. So I'm about to throw a bunch of information at you. Hopefully it will be useful information it will be contextual about mostly U.S. workforce policies, but I know we have some international listeners on the webinar today. And so there's also going to be some advice in here about relationship building and connection making with mainstream organizations that is just as valuable even if you're not living in the U.S. and the specific funding streams that I'm mentioning may not be available um, in wherever it is that you're located. So, when you don't control the money, you need allies. What do I mean by that, right? Well, a lot of folks who are joining us today are with small community-based organizations. Some of you are with larger community colleges or other entities, and some of you are with government agencies. But all of you have budgets, and all of your budgets have many demands on them. And so the focus of my comments today is really around, given that everyone has some degree of restricted resources, what can I tell you about how you can connect with your peers in state government, with others in your community to gain access to what are sometimes called mainstream workforce development resources to support refugee job seekers in moving along career pathways? And so the kinds of questions that we're going to be asking are sort of who are the key allies in the workforce and education systems, how you can connect with them, what might motivate them to collaborate with you, and what you need in order to speak their language. So we really recommend focusing on three pieces uh, to identify allies, right? The first are what are the policies and the resources that can help you? So put bluntly, this is partly about funding streams, right? What are the federal policies that send money to your state or your community that you can get, in, get access to? Um, who in state or local government controls those resources? And then how are those people connected, if at all, to your strongest champions? Um, why do I have that last point on there? I have that last point on there because even though I'm about to tell you a lot of information about specific public policies, we all know that the world runs on human relationships. And so if you have a board chair 
who knows the person on your state workforce board, or if you have a coworker who uh, either participates in a Rotary Club or a sports league or a religious organization with a person you're trying to reach, that's an important thing to think about as you think about who are my champions, how can they tell the story of refugee job seekers to the person who's in a position to help me get access to workforce resources. So we're going to talk about three specific types of policies. Again, these are U.S. policies, but the relationship examples and, and the kind of broader questions are applicable even to those outside the U.S. So the first example is around the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. That money is distributed via formula funding to every state. Uh, formula funding just means they get it more or less automatically. It's not a competitive grant that your state needs to apply for. Uh, they're just going to get it each year. Um, and the, the resources are intended to support job uh, preparation and employment services and short-term job training, um, specifically in high-priority occupations. They get distributed to your state labor agency and your state workforce development board, and then from there to your local workforce development board. And typically, your governor is the person who appoints the key people uh, in charge of those agencies. So how do those people overlap with the people who are your strongest champions, right? And then what will motivate them to collaborate, right? So maybe you know somebody who knows somebody who's the state workforce board person, or maybe you are on your state workforce board. What are they already on the hook to accomplish, right? Do they have a goal about uh, High-priority occupations in our community include dental assistance, or um, we really want to see more people get access to uh, career and technical education in our community. How can you make the case that refugees can help them solve whatever goal or target they already feel under pressure to accomplish? Right? So if they have a goal around training more dental hygienists, can you talk to them about whether there are refugees in your community who have health backgrounds? Um, and really being able to convey that information through a person whose perspective they respect. So maybe that means that you're the person prepping your board chair or you're prepping your coworker uh, to talk to the person they know who has control over those workforce resources. But in general, I find that it's a much smoother conversation uh, when you can walk in the door knowing a little bit about what they're already responsible for doing and connecting the dots to how refugees can help them accomplish it. And the good news is there's public information available. There's a public WIOA plan that is a public state workforce innovation opportunity plan that you can read. Um, and you can learn more about how your state is proposing to tackle its workforce development needs. There are already states that have used their WIOA funding for immigrant and refugee needs. I've put a couple of examples on the slide here. Each of these are ones that have been publicly written about. Um, most of them are on the National Skills Coalition website. So if you're interested and you want to delve deeper, uh, you'll be able to refer to these slides afterwards and dig deeper on any example. You'll also be able to follow up with me individually. The second policy I want to emphasize is ability to benefit. It's kind of a strange phrase. Um, basically, it has to do with the Higher Education Act in the United States, which funds post-secondary education, or what uh, ordinary people would call 
student financial aid, right? Whether you're enrolling in a community college class, whether you're studying for a four-year university, whether you're taking a certificate program, um, you are probably filling out a student aid application. And typically, that requires you to already have your high school diploma or equivalent. But we know that not all refugees have had the opportunity to finish high school, or if they did finish high school, they may not have had the opportunity to bring their paperwork with them when they had to flee the persecution that they were facing in their home countries. Ability to benefit is a provision that says that if a student can show that they have the ability to benefit from higher education, despite not having a high school diploma or equivalent, they can be enrolled in higher education and get access to federal student financial aid. So why does this matter? Well, first of all, it matters because there's a lot more money available nationwide in ability to benefit than there is in terms of the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act. WIOA is a little less than $3 billion. Ability to benefit and other uh, federal student aid is about $30 billion. Um, but secondly, and more importantly, it's a really important step two for refugees. Don't think of this just as being about students who are 18 or 19 years old. Think about it for the working parent who's 31 or 32, who's in a survival job, who'd really like to be able to move up to a middle skill job and might be able to take a short-term course in a community college that would allow them to do that, but doesn't have the ability to pay for that course out of pocket and isn't working for an employer that's going to give them a tuition reimbursement policy. So, who controls the rules about ability to benefit and sort of helping refugees navigate that process? Typically, your state board of regions or your state community college board uh, may issue state-level guidance, but more commonly, it's the individual institutions, the particular college um, in your community that refugees might be trying to attend that are setting their policies. Of course, in both cases, there are federal requirements that need to be fit within this. There's a series of excellent resources on ability to benefit that are available both from the U.S. Department of Education and from the Center for Law and Social Policy, or CLASP. Um, but again, if you're thinking about, all right, well, let's say I want to walk down the street to my local community college and talk to them about the refugees that I've served that really want to take the next step in their careers. What on earth is going to make these folks pay attention to me? The answer is twofold. There are 43 states that have set post-secondary credential attainment goals, which is just a fancy way of saying, can we have 60% of our state's population earn a credential, a degree or certificate, by the year 2025 or the year 2030? Um, the second thing that could motivate people to pay attention to you is if their college or your state um, is noticing that, gosh, there aren't as many 17-year-olds as there used to be, and we really need to be paying attention to adult students to make sure that our enrollment targets are able to be met. So again, if you walk in the door thinking of your refugee job seekers and refugee clients as assets and solutions to challenges that your partners are facing, that's a really different conversation than if you walk in the door talking about how frustrated you are that their institution or their governing board has not done a good job of serving refugees, even if that is the case. So the um, 
uh, communities that have succeeded in ability to benefit, there's been really creative work happening in at least a half a dozen states. I've just flagged a few of them here, Texas, Wisconsin, Washington State. Um, again, a lot of this information is public. Um, you'll also have my contact information shared with you after this webinar so that if you want to follow up with me specifically, you can. And then finally, I want to encourage you to not forget about federal discretionary grants. So these are competitive. That means that either your state or organizations within your state have to apply for them. They don't come automatically. Um, and there's a couple of big examples recently that have ended up being able to be used to be served refuge for refugees, even though they're not designed that way. One around apprenticeship, one around Institute of Museum and Library Services grants. Um, now, the apprenticeship grants went to state labor departments. The IMLS grants go to public libraries. But in both cases, those agencies can turn around and subcontract or partner with nonprofit organizations and other partners in their communities. So when you think about ways to serve immigrants well, help refugees move along career pathways, help refugees access workforce and education resources in their communities, thinking about your leverage, you're thinking about bringing a piece of the puzzle that nobody else can bring to the table, right? For a public library, maybe the piece you're bringing to the table is a way for that library to reach a community that they've been struggling to reach or to increase the number of attendees at events where they've been struggling to get participation, right? For the apprenticeship, maybe you have a good relationship with an employer that your state labor agency or your local labor folks have been trying to build a connection with and you have that connection. So think about what you have to offer that nobody else does. And then don't ever forget that behind every policy decision, both good and bad, are people. And making that personal connection and connecting the dots to the personal role of refugees in our community is what can compel people to action. I'll stop there. Um, I'll go ahead and pass things back over to S.A. and we'll go ahead and move on to the next part of the webinar. Excellent. Thank you so much, Amanda. Those were really helpful, practical, and actionable steps that we can all take to uh, connect better with our, our allies in these programs. So thank you for that. Our second presenter is someone many in the refugee resettlement community know and, and love, Sarah Peterson. Sarah is the State Refugee Coordinator for Washington and the President of SCORE, or the State Coordinators for Refugee Resettlement. She has extensive experience in helping unaccompanied refugee minors, asylees, refugees, and others, and was recognized by the Governor's Award for Leadership and Management, as well as the Islamic Center of Tri-Cities for her innovative and passionate support of refugee resettlement. Sarah will walk us through a concrete example of how Washington State developed an employability program through what, at first glance, may seem like an unexpected federal funding source. So Sarah, with that, I'll turn it over to you. Great. Thank you so much, S.A. It's a great opportunity to join Karen, Amanda, and yourself on this webinar hosted by Migration Policy Institute. And every time I hear Amanda speak, I learn something new. So I really am just excited about all of the opportunities that we learned today. 
Washington's basic food employment and training program developed out of a community-led partnership 15 years ago. Today, it continues to be used as a tool to leverage resources for innovative programming and services in Washington's workforce development program. We focus on helping uh, low-income individuals, including refugees and immigrants, to gain skills and experience to be successful in the job market. We believe that the story of how Washington developed our BFET program is a great example of building allies and partnerships that Amanda talked about and leveraging resources from a federally funded program. In 2005, a community collaboration between Washington's Department of Social and Health Services, which is the agency that administers public benefits programs like uh, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program and TANF, and it also oversees our state's refugee resettlement program, DSHS partnered with the White Center Community Development Association. And the White Center Community Development Association was a local site for the Annie E. Casey Foundation Making Connection Project, which was a 10-year initiative that deployed a two-generation approach to help families advance out of poverty, focusing on increasing family economic success and preparing young children for life and school. What's unique about the Seattle's White Center area, it is a very diverse neighborhood and it's home to many refugees and immigrants. It also has a high level of poverty. In 2005, DSHS partnered with the uh, White Center Community Development Association and three other CBOs and one community college to seize an opportunity to expand the USDA's SNAP Employment and Training Program through what's called the Third Party Match Program to help low-income individuals receive the skills, training, supports needed to enter the workforce and gain progressive employment opportunities. Today, Washington's BFET program includes partnerships with over 87 different sites, including 42 community-based organizations and 33 community and technical colleges. In addition, the Washington Office of Refugee and Immigrant Assistance specifically partners with over 12 different organizations that are refugee resettlement agencies and ethnic community-based organizations that focus and customize services for recently arrived refugees and other immigrant communities. In 2019, the BFEP program served an average of 6,500 people every month including an average of 260 refugees and immigrants. As a partner in Washington's workforce development program, the BFET program emphasizes skill building and post-secondary certification employment towards goals of self-sufficiency. It is able to provide wraparound services to prevent or mitigate barriers and works in tandem with skill building efforts to move people forward to getting not only that first initial job in refugees in, for a refugee, but also how can they think about progressive opportunities. It is able to serve people who are not receiving federal cash assistance, such as TANF or refugee cash assistance. They must be over 16 years of age and must receive federally funded food stamps or SNAP. In Washington, we call it basic food. Providers and communities really appreciate the BFEP program because it offers flexible support services, including being able to cover rental assistance. 
One of our refugee providers also has used it to help assist highly educated individuals to pay for their international education evaluation and re-credentialing process. So you may be asking yourself, why isn't every state doing the SNAP ENT model? While the funding model can present a tremendous opportunity to invest additional federal funding, it can also be administratively complex and challenging, especially to find the third part of funding. So USDA invests two different types of funding streams, and the most, the most significant is the third-party match program. The USDA Food and Nutritional Services distributes the 100% federal funding nationwide based on the federal formula related to the number of work registrants in that state. The third-party match program is different in that it requires private funding to draw down and equally match these federal resources. The Washington Basic Food Employment Program operates as a reimbursement model where community partners must provide monthly invoices to get reimbursed and to draw down their federal funding, and they must demonstrate the non-federal match dollars. Washington's federal fiscal year 2018 budget demonstrates the overall level of ability for a state to draw down funding to support employment and training for SNAP recipients. Nearly $50 million it was invested into the BFET program in 2018, and um, the third party match was about $20 million of that. This model requires a level of sophistication for a nonprofit provider to have enough resources to support the program, be reimbursed, and match the federal dollars with non-federal resources. While it seems complex, we have been able to work with nonprofit organizations to really make the program work and really find um, non-federal partners to, to bring in the match. The SNAP ENT program is really an excellent opportunity to strengthen workforce partnerships and offer employment and training services to people receiving SNAP benefits. Uh, there you go. Uh, in 2012, Washington's Office of Refugee and Immigrant Assistance um, initiated a new basic food employment and training program. Based on information that we received from our community partners, refugee resettlement agencies and others who were providing um, general employment services uh, through the refugee resettlement program, they approached us. And in a collaborative fashion, Oriah worked with the organizations that serve limited English proficient TANF clients and recently arrived refugees to carve out a portion of our general state money to leverage federal funding. Many refugee resettlement agencies and other CBOs reported to us that they had a difficulty becoming providers in the basic food employment and training program due to the matching requirements. Because Washington did have that general funding, we were successfully able to carve out about $400,000 of general state funding to leverage uh, federal resources. Today, the Araya BFET program partners with 12 different refugee-serving organizations, and we have drawn down at least half a million dollars in federal funding to support refugee employment services. On average, these services reach about 1,000 refugees and immigrants each year. The Uriah BFET program has, successfully, has been successful in helping refugees like Aisha. Aisha is a Somali refugee mother of four, and she stopped her formal education in her home country at sixth grade. 
When she arrived in, in Seattle, she enrolled in ESL classes. As she gained English skills and became more confident, our providers were able to help her find her first job in the United States. After she gained initial employment, she continued to participate in our Araya BFET program, working with her case manager to remove barriers to employment through ongoing support, such as transportation assistance and addressing housing issues. The Araya BFET program is currently working with her to gain additional life skills and job search skills while she participates in a home care aid training program. This is a perfect example of how we are able as a state to partner with our community-based organizations to really provide services that impact um, the people who need advanced help for getting jobs. I really want to thank everybody for your participation, and um, I look forward to uh, joining more of the conversation and answering questions. I'm now going to turn the conversation back over to Essay uh, and just thank you so much for the opportunity. Sarah, thank you so much. What an incredible accomplishment you and, and your colleagues in Washington have done. Thank you for sharing the ins and outs of the SNAP ENT program, which really can only come from direct experience. And it's tremendous, the impact that you've had on over a thousand uh, refugees like Aisha. So thank you for that specific story as well. So now we've heard about WIOA Title I funds, ability to connect, as well as SNAP employment and training funds. These are three options for a potential follow-up. Uh, we'll turn to our third presenter now, Karen Philippi, who is the Director of New Americans Integration in Michigan. Karen is a key contributor to the State Refugee Coordinator's Office and has worked in immigration law and immigrant integration for over 27 years. She is passionate about integration issues and, if I may, borrowing from a Star Wars reference, is a Jedi in strategic planning. Karen will tell us how Michigan tapped into mainstream federal funding to support navigator positions dedicated to serving refugees and immigrants within several local workforce development agencies. Karen, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks so much, S.A., and thank you to MPI uh, for hosting the webinar today. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about our work here in Michigan as it relates to leveraging mainstream systems and funding for employment for refugees. As background for those not familiar with our office, um, the Office of Global Michigan is a state-level office whose primary goal is to support immigrant and refugee integration efforts. And the State Refugee Resettlement Program is one of the programs housed within our office. Um, today I'm going to touch on two of our initiatives. Um, the first is our Refugee and Immigrant Navigators. Um, so how did this come to be? So back in um, October of 2015 through March of 2016, our office held a refugee strategy work group and we brought in just about every state agency as well as all of our refugee resettlement agencies and we discussed um, the refugee resettlement and post-resettlement process and we were looking to see if there were any gaps in services and if so, were those gaps regional or statewide? And as part of that work group, we came up with kind of a whole list of different issues and opportunities that could be addressed here in Michigan. And one of the items that was brought up was the access to workforce development services, specifically those provided through our local Michigan Works agencies or MWAs. 
One of our office's main priorities, we've been around for almost six years now, one of our office's main priorities is to partner with state agencies who provide services and programming accessed by refugees or immigrants and try to minimize or eliminate barriers. Um, so with that in mind, um, our office partnered with our state labor department and we created the Refugee and Immigrant Navigator or RAIN pilot program. Essentially, the goal of the program is to try to ensure seamless access to workforce development and community services for um, refugees and immigrants. The navigators function as facilitators, problem solvers, systems change agents, and relationship builders in support of refugees and immigrants, specifically when it comes to providing those workforce development services. So to start, we identified the four counties with the largest number of refugees and immigrants, and navigators were hired for those four county MWAs in their one stops with the largest amount of pedestrian traffic. Um, <clears throat> for the first year of the pilot, our office, um, the state labor agency and the navigators met on a quarterly basis. During these meetings, um, different aspects of the pilot program were discussed and some things were revised, some things were enhanced. Again, this was a pilot, we we're trying this out, let's see what's gonna work. Um, so obviously there were different ups and downs throughout the year in terms of what, um, how the program was moving forward. Um, and additionally, our office provided the technical content training at each quarterly meeting. Our office also held monthly phone calls with the navigators to answer any questions that might arise between the quarterly meetings. During the first year of the pilot program, our office had the opportunity to partner with West Global Talent Bridge and Amanda at the National Skills Coalition to create a resource guide and checklist around serving refugees and immigrants, specifically through federal WIOA-funded programs. The resource serves as a best practice guide, not only for our navigators, but for all state and local workforce development employees. And actually all of those who um, are on the, the webinar today, all of your states can actually create a similar resource through Amanda and the National Skills Coalition. Um, and it has served as a really great um, resource for, um, for our workforce development folks. Um, our navigators are unique in that in addition to serving as frontline for the MWAs in terms of workforce development, they're also expected to go out into the community and develop um, services or develop, a, um, um, develop resources for refugees and immigrants around childcare options, transportation options, legal service providers, ESL classes, et cetera, et cetera. So when an individual approaches one of the NWAs who has the navigator, that navigator conducts an initial assessment not only for workforce development services, but also for any other needs the individual may have. The navigator then provides referrals to those community resources. And we've had a lot of positive feedback from our Michigan Works agencies, our local MWAs, about this community component to the navigator um, program. They've really appreciated the additional community connections they've been able to make with different service providers that they had not connected with in the past. For year two of our pilot program, so in fiscal year 19, we added a fifth county to the RAIN program. Um, that fifth county was added because as most of you know, there was a lot of change in refugee resettlement over the last couple of years. And so we also saw a change in where um, larger numbers of refugees were coming into our state. Um, so we added a fifth county to the program um, and for the first two years of this pilot program, it was two thirds federal funded and one third state funded. 
the pilot program ended with the close of fiscal year 19. Um, the, the RAIN program itself didn't end, just the pilot uh, ended. So for fiscal year 20, there's no specific funding available from the state for the navigators, but rather um, the existing MWAs who had navigators, so those five counties are encouraged to use other sources of funds such as dislocated worker dollars to fund either part-time or full-time navigator positions. All five counties have committed to continuing to fund their five full-time navigator positions. We also, for fiscal year 20, have opened up this program to all of our MWAs around the state. Again, not offering specific state dollars, but allowing, encouraging folks to access other type of funds um, to fund the position. And we have had interest from other um, MWAs in other counties. Um, our office will continue to provide the content expertise and training. And additionally, um, we are in the process of compiling a best practices and lessons learned document from the first two years of the pilot that we will share with all of the MWAs. Another way that Michigan has leveraged funding for employment services is through our employment contracts with refugee service providers. A few years ago, our state refugee office realized that some refugees were staying in their initial job placements, which was just around or at minimum wage. We really wanted to incentivize our partners to reach back out to refugees to try and improve their wages and or provide them with options for career laddering. So we developed a pay per performance incentive within the employment contracts. Our partners with those contracts would receive additional funds or they do receive additional funds per placement by moving refugees from part-time to full-time positions or by seeing a wage increase of at least $1.75 per hour. These incentives are funded by reserving a portion of the contracted budget and then providing those funds only if those additional goals are met. Initially, our partners really like this idea of having to focus on this. They also like that aspect of reaching back out to um, clients and to, to refugees, although we did receive some pushback from partners as well because they had to budget differently and, and prepare differently for their, um, for their years. Um, Ultimately, however, our partners have seen this as a really good incentive. Um, we believe that this change has been successful. Um, as you can see, in fiscal year 18, we had 96 refugees who had job upgrades, and the average wage for their upgraded employment was $13.54 per hour. And for fiscal year 19, there were 69 job upgrades with an average upgraded employment of $13.67 per hour. So again, we've had a lot um, since this program was implemented a couple years ago, we have um, had um, success from our partners, and our partners have really appreciated um, these additional incentives to, um, to really try and um, increase those wages for uh, the refugee population. Um, I will now turn the microphone back over to SA for final comments and questions. Wonderful. Thank you, Karen. It's really tremendous, the structural change that you and, and your partners and Michigan have been able to achieve both with the RAIN Navigators Program and the incentives in the contract, uh, and particularly the sustainability of the navigator position through, through other funding. Uh, tying it all together, I'm reminded of what Amanda said at the very beginning of this webinar, which is that approaching allies and new partnerships with the mindset that our work with refugees can actually benefit mainstream programs is um, living proof through both Michigan and Washington. So thank you again very much. We will turn now to questions and discussion. 
Thank you to all of those who are participating, uh, particularly to those who've submitted questions. The first one that uh, I will highlight here is, is a question that perhaps Amanda can, can take on, and it has to do with WIOA funding and the state plans. Specifically, uh, the question is, do state plans tend to vary drastically from state to state? Uh, if so, why? If not, why not? Amanda, could you shed any light on that? Sure. Um, the short answer is yes, they vary from state to state. Um, and they vary because, to be honest, some states see them more as compliance documents and some states see them more as a vision that is really a strategic document that's guiding their work. Um, and all the plans are publicly available. The federal government keeps the repository of them on the Department of Education website. A little buried and hard to find. So I'll talk with our friends at Migration Policy Institute and make sure that we can include a link to that in the follow-up email uh, that goes out to you all after today's webinar. Um, but the important thing to know about WIOA plans, right, is the federal government says some things that have to be included in every state's Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act plan. But some states go beyond that. So for example, California has requirements about how local workforce boards in areas that have at least 15% of the population speaking English as a second language, uh, they have to talk about how their workforce plan is going to serve limited English speakers as part of their plan. So if you're wondering whether your state has those additional requirements, um, you can find that out on your state's uh, workforce board website. Um, and if you'd like to see California's requirements, those are publicly listed on the California workforce board website under their directives page. Uh, it's kind of a nice example of how the, the state workforce board can kind of nudge the locals to say, hey, pay a little more attention to this because this is a community of job seekers in our communities that needs to be equitably served. Fantastic. Thank you for that, Amanda. I have another question here that, that may go to you, Amanda, or uh, perhaps Sarah, and it has to do with um, the eligibility um, of SNAP recipients. So the question is, what percentage of SNAP recipients do not receive TANF or refugee cash assistance and, and presumably, therefore, might be eligible for the ENT program? The short answer is I don't know the answer to that question, um, Sarah May. So I think it's a little bit complicated, but um, for us in Washington, we consider our basic food employment and training program um, like an extension of our services to be able to, provide, to help people who are refugees that have been in the United States a little bit longer. So for the most part, and I don't know if this is true for the person who asked the question, but for the most part, when refugees arrive in Washington, if they are um, a family, they're placed, they receive TANF federal cash assistance. If they're a single or married adult without dependents, they get refugee cash assistance. And then as they progress through their time period, refugee cash assistance ends after eight months. And usually families, once they get their first job, they're no longer income eligible for TANF. 
However, the SNAP program goes all, here in Washington goes all the way up to 200% of the federal poverty line. So there may be refugee families that, and in fact there are many refugee families who have been in the United States a little bit longer, received that first job, are working, no longer receiving TANF cash, but are still low income enough to be eligible for, for SNAP. I can um, see if I can get, I don't actually have a, the data around how many, um, but I would say that it, it, it occurs often enough that we are able to serve over 1,000 refugees and immigrants every year, and about 90% of the people that we serve in this program are refugees. Excellent, thank you, Sarah. Uh, we have time for just a couple more questions before we close. And there is one question now, um, Karen, that maybe you can, you can help to shed some light on. And it has to do with what you've produced in Michigan in terms of the WIOA guide. The question reads, can you share more about how to make the WIOA guide resource for your RAIN team members to use? And is the one that you created in Michigan publicly available to see as an example? Sure, happy to answer that question. Um, so how can you create your own? You can contact Amanda Burks and Shilcock at the National Skills Coalition. Um, we were really intentional when we created this document with the National Skills Coalition and West Global Talent Bridge to make it so that it's easily transferable to other states. Um, so I would say maybe two-thirds of the content is um, more general, and then maybe one-third of the content is very specific to Michigan. Um, you know, we've just been going through a transition here in Michigan um, with a, a new-ish uh, governor uh, moving around departments and changing websites, et cetera. So I don't believe the WIOA guide and checklist are on our current website, but um, my contact information, I, th I think, uh, may be provided, and I'm happy to send that to folks if they would like to see it. I'm happy to provide it, or I can even send it to MPI and have them send it out. I think maybe, SA, you may have received it already. I'm um, not sure if there's a good way to get it out to folks. Um, Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, Yep, but that's the best way to, if you want to create your own in the state, um, definitely contact Amanda at National Skills Coalition. Thank you, Karen, and thank you for providing a copy of, of the resources that you've prepared. We have a couple of questions about the Institute of Museum and Library Services grant funding. Amanda, this may be something that you can help us with. I'm going to try to blend a couple of questions together. Um, in general, uh, can, can we learn more about how to access those funds? And then specifically, um, Karen, there may be a way for you to chime in here. How could the Institute of Museum and Library Services grants help to, to support or sponsor the navigator role? So Amanda, if we can start with you, and then Karen, if you'd like to add, we'd turn to you. Yeah, that's a great question. So the IMLS is a federal government agency, and their list of grant applications is public. Uh, so you will see when they release a request for proposals. The lead applicant on any application for funding has to be a public library. So um, at, at least for the kinds of grants I'm talking about. So you'll need to talk to your local public library about it. The good news is they also have a list on their website of their past grantees. And you can go through and look at uh, sort of what's been supported. 
there has been work in the past around libraries that have created citizenship corners to try to encourage people to apply for U.S. citizenship. And there's a grant that's gone to the library in Philadelphia, the Free Library of Philadelphia, for a really big nonprofit community-based organization, local workforce board, and public library partnership to support workforce development in a section of the city that is inhabited almost completely by African-American, African immigrant, and Caribbean immigrant residents. Um, and because of the nature of Philadelphia, that's a lot of refugees. Um, and so that, uh, that grant was funded a couple of years ago in Philadelphia. There is a description of it on the IMLS website. But that's an example where the library was the lead applicant, and then they pulled in nonprofit community-based partners who had those trusted relationships with refugee and immigrant uh, communities uh, as kind of subcontractors or partners on the project. Wonderful. Thank you, Amanda. We're just getting all kinds of good information here as a part of this discussion. Um, I'm going to try to squeeze in two, two more questions. One uh, really points to an underserved group, uh, both in mainstream and in the refugee community, and that is people with disabilities. And the question is, are there any state workforce development programs that refugees with disabilities could access? So this is Amanda. Um, the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act Title IV funds vocational rehabilitation services, that is uh, workforce services for people with disabilities. Refugees are eligible for OVR services um, just the same as anybody else who lives in that state would be eligible. Um, so that is one possibility, and I've seen examples in Texas and elsewhere where refugees have been served through OVR programs. Um, but the reality is that just as with other mainstream service providers, you may get people who have deep expertise in serving job seekers with disabilities but not have a background in refugee issues or vice versa. Um, and so I always encourage people to think as creatively as they can about collaborations, um, and particularly around questions of how can we um, sort of partner with non-traditional partners to go after additional funding to support uh, the populations we want to support. Right? So the American Apprenticeship Grants that I mentioned are a good example. These are discretionary grants that states can compete for. Um, Congress put a, a couple hundred million dollars into them in the past uh, couple of years. And it's possible that if you uh, went with a, a partner serving uh, people with disabilities to your state labor agency and you said, you know, we have a vision for creating an apprenticeship or a pre-apprenticeship for uh, individuals with disabilities, including refugees with disabilities, that would be something that could help them compete for those federal funds, and then they could turn around and subcontract to you. So I do think it can require some creativity, um, but I have absolutely seen kind of traditional offices of vocational rehabilitation uh, start to serve refugees. So and this is Karen. So we have here in Michigan the Michigan Rehabilitation Services um, within the state of Michigan, which um, provides specialized employment and education-related services and training to assist specifically teens and adults with disabilities um, in becoming employed or retaining employment. Um, refugees would be able to have access to that, um, to the Michigan Rehabilitation Services, if 
um, um, you know, assuming they qualify, they, they would be able to have access to those services through the state. Thank you for that addition, Karen. And uh, I'm noticing the time. We are going to wrap up in just a moment here. As I said, I'm gonna fit in one more question and then we'll turn to close. Uh, Amanda and, and perhaps Sarah and, and Karen, if you can speak to this, we received a Twitter question that asked about funding for ESL classes. Are you aware of any mainstream programs that fund ESL classes? So the short answer is the major way the federal government funds English classes is through the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, or WIOA, Title II. And states vary in how they administer those funding. Some of them run it through their community college systems. Some of them run it through nonprofit community-based organizations. And some of them run it through um, their K-12 school districts where they have special programs for parents to learn English. Um, but individual states also fund English classes. And they don't always uh, fund them through the federal system. Sometimes they fund them through special requests for proposals. Karen actually has a great example of some work that Michigan did using some funding from the governor, uh, which I'd love to hear her talk about. I'll talk briefly because I know we're running out of time, but yeah, a couple years ago, um, our uh, then governor provided our office with some funds to grant out um, for creative um, and innovative ESL programming. And this actually also came out of our refugee strategy work group that I mentioned earlier. Um, as most of you can imagine, ESL was one of the top um, issues. Um, and so we were able to fund five different programs. Um, we required that these not be existing programs. We wanted to folks to try out new or creative ways of delivering ESL. We also required for these grant opportunities that they were collaboration. So no one entity could apply on their own. We required that organizations or entities collaborated with other smaller based community service organizations. Um, and that pilot program ran um, in 2017. Fantastic. I can talk Thank more about you. it, but I'll, I'll cut off there since I know we're short for time. <laughs> yes, and we will definitely share contact information with everyone as well as the slides and audio from today's webinar so that others can follow up. Um, let me just take a moment here to thank you, uh, Sarah, Karen, and, and Amanda for sharing really valuable information and, and inspirational information that shows us uh, it's possible to partner with mainstream programs and look at better job strategies for refugees over the long haul. Uh, there are a couple of other resources I want to point to. One is the report that we mentioned, Promoting Refugee Integration in Challenging Times, which is available on the MPI website. And um, for any reporters who are on the call and who have further questions, please contact Michelle Middlestat at 202-266-1910. My contact information is also available there on these slides for you. And if you would like to receive updates from MPI on an ongoing basis, please sign up to our listserv at migrationpolicy.org backslash sign up. Thank you again to all of our speakers and all of our participants. We have additional questions and we will try our best to answer those and send them out in the follow-up email. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.